0: Book dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub
1: Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem.
0: I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we cover so many great topics. Everything from why it's absurd that there isn't more diversity in the casting of the Lord of the Rings movies, to astonishing revelations about certain African mythologies, to how the Western mindset has affected story structure. And this is all just from the very beginning of our conversation, because that is what happens when you have a conversation with the incomparable Marlon James.
1: I remember so vividly the moment we realized that there was a glimmer of a possibility that we might get to interview Marlon. A publicist from Penguin Random House sent us a list of their upcoming releases and asked if we were interested in trying to speak with any of the authors. I saw Marlon James on that list, and my instant response was, please tell Marlon that if he would like to be a guest on Book Dreams, we will speak with him any place, anytime. primarily because he's a powerhouse of an author, and also because I'm a big fan of the podcast Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, on which he and his editor, Jake Morrissey, discuss the classics. In essence, I love reading Marlon's books and listening to what he has to say. What more could we want in a guest? I mean, nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> right. That's it. Right. And when he
0: said yes, I'm going to ride that wave of excitement for a very long time.
1: hundred percent.
0: Yeah. But before we tell you more about Marlon, I want to quickly share that during the interview itself, we had a strange technological glitch Marlon's volume was very low and ours was very high. And we were able to fix that in the final production, but we didn't know at the time that it was fixable. So if you find yourself wondering why aren't Eve and Julie responding adequately to all these fascinating things that Marlon is saying, why are they staying so quiet? It's because we were worried about drowning him out. That was such a struggle, Eve. Oh, my gosh. Can we please not talk about it? I'm, I'm still upset about that.
1: I know. I know. But far more importantly, here is some background on Marlon. Marlon James was born in Jamaica in 1970. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, which was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction in 2019. His novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, won the 2015 Man Booker Prize, it was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and a New York Times Notable Book. Marlon is also the author of The Book of Night Women*, which won the 2010 Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Minnesota Book Award and was a finalist for the 2010 National Book Critics Circle Award in Fiction and an NAACP Image Award. His first novel, John Crow's Devil, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for First Fiction and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and was a New York Times editor's choice.
0: Marlene's latest book is Moonwitch Spider King, the follow-up to Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and the second book in the Dark Star trilogy. In Black Leopard, Tracker, the protagonist of the book, vies with Sogolon, the Moonwitch as they cross a mythical African landscape in search of a mysterious boy who's disappeared. Now in Moonwitch, Sogolon gives her own account of what happened to the boy. I want to emphasize that you do not need to have read Black Leopard to read and love Moonwitch, And I want to read from the New York Times Review because it gives a sense of the book's appeal and scope. Moonwitch Spider King tells the story, quote, of a character scrappier than Arya Stark, cleverer than Jane Eyre, as foul-mouthed as any gangster, with the world-weary humor of a noir private eye and the inscrutable morals of an anti-hero. For nearly 200 years, we follow her as she goes from whorehouse to royal courts, from fight club to monkey forest. Everywhere she is overlooked and underestimated, and in her invisibility, she finds freedom. I love this book so much. It's 600 and I don't even know how many pages, and I did not want to put it down.
1: I feel exactly the same. It is so immersive and propulsive, and the world building is astonishing. I know we could go on and on, just the two of us talking about the book, but far better, let's go to our conversation with Marlon. We started by asking him about his decision to embark on writing this trilogy, which resulted from a fight that he had with a friend after the cast for The Hobbit movie was announced. Here's Marlon describing that fight.
2: Then I announced the cast, and it was a fight we always have about representation and about diversity. And I said, you know, if we opened up in the Shire and saw an Asian Hobbit, nobody would care. And he said, um, you know, well, the Hobbits and Lord of the Rings is based on British folklore and British mythology and Celtic mythology and so on. And I said, you, you, you do know that Lord of the Rings isn't real. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> you, know, you, you really can do what you want. And having met members of the Tolkien family, they would have been excited Mm. by something like that. And I think after a while, I just said to him, you know what, you can keep, go, go keep, go keep your hobbit. Yeah, right. Not his hobbit, yeah. but still. But then when he mentioned the whole thing about folklore and mythology, I realized I didn't really know any African mythology and folklore. And because I didn't know all of that history, I couldn't write a Lord of the Rings or a Narnia or even an Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. So that's what sent me on this whole quest to find my mythological history and religious history and so on. I didn't start out to actually write anything is in reading some of this crazy stuff, I'm like, man, this is a, this is a hundred books.
1: Could you share with us one or more of the stories that you read and thought, you know, I definitely want to incorporate this?
2: Yeah, One of the things that amazed me, was how many African cultures are fine with queerness and trans identities. We hear lots of stories about homophobic countries and about homophobic laws and so on. And when I heard that there were these peoples and nations that had, say, um, all, pretty much all gay warriors, I was like, what? And if I were, for example, transporting my virgin princess to be married over hostile territory, who can I trust? Oh, I can trust that tribe because they aren't down for women folk. That shocked me because I think um, even now, queer people in the African continent are having a really, really hard time because it's been perpetrated that, say, homosexuality is un-African. When you go back and read the mythologies and the histories, you go, oh, no, it's a homophobia. That's not African. I didn't go looking for that. I didn't necessarily go looking for validation, but I found it. So that was one of the surprises. Another cool surprise was when I found out that you know, African vampires are perfectly fine going after you in the daylight. They saw, oh, it's morning. I must head back to my coffin. No, that's European. That's European wussy vampires. Africans are like, no, I'll come after you in high noon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've said that once you started to dig into African folklore, mythology, and history, that your first book in the trilogy, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, started to almost write itself, and that one thing that had to happen was de-Europeanizing how you were going to write it. This led to the structure that you chose for the trilogy, namely to tell the story of one incident involving the disappearance of an unnamed boy from three different points of view. Can you tell us more about why you chose the structure and what makes it un-European?
2: Well, one thing that one a big influence was the Afri- a lot of the African stories that I was reading, that sometimes there were these epics of the same story told from different points of view. And also the idea that there is no such thing as this sort of authentic story. I think in Western storytelling, we have this thing about, you know, the true version, the authentic story, the director's cut. This obsession with this one story, you know, to trump all stories. That doesn't exist in a lot of the old folklore. And they were fine with that. Mm -hmm. The burden of truth was on the believer. That was, I mean, a major thing in influencing the type of story I wanted to tell. Um, I think I was also watching Rashomon a lot <laughs> <laughs> and remembering how much, you know, why this is one of my top five favorite movies. It's a story about storytelling. And I think that one of the things that most of my novels are about in one way is they are books about people telling you a story. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that um, because of that, I could have three characters tell, on the surface, be the same story. They all end the same way. But it turns out that um, how they got to that point are all radically different.
0: You've talked about racism being a, quote, fantasy of superiority. I think that was in response to something that Fran Leibowitz said in a conversation with Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. And you were agreeing with that quote when you said... A huge part of our reality is shaped by our fantastical imagination. That's where our prejudices come from. It's also where some of our desires come from. It's because we're imaginative people. And because we don't realize how easily that imagination can run afoul of other people that we don't realize these are the kinds of cycles that cause harm. We need to be more vigilant about our imaginations. Can you say a little more about that, particularly the vigilance we need to exert over our imaginations?
2: Yeah, you know, Claudia Rankin in Citizen has a line, you know, where she says, you know, um, until we learn to police our imaginations, we're going to always end up with another black person being killed, you know, by the police. I think I said in, in that piece as well, you know, before any reached George Floyd's desk, neck, a phone call was made. Before the police respond to a threat, a phone call was made. You know, it's not just the imagination of the cop that we need to talk about. We need to talk about the imagination of the people making these calls. And that's us. Imagination needs knowledge. In the absence of knowledge, imagination just leads to prejudice. Right. It feeds our fears. What we end up doing is that we're not getting to know people. We're projecting our fears on them and then reacting to it. And it happens in all sorts of ways. It's the Black characters in Heart of Darkness. It's 99.999% of all the women written in American novels by men in the 1950s, the 80s. Good luck finding three-dimensional women in those novels. So it's how are we using that imagination? Are we allowing what we learn to enrich our imaginations? Or are we allowing what we fear? Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be vigilant about that.
1: Right. Um in an NPR review of Moon Witch, Spider King, Alex Brown writes, Tracker, who's the narrator of the first book in the series, thinks he's clever enough to see the ropes being pulled behind the scenes. Sagalan, or the Moon Witch, not only sees the ropes, but also the people who pull them, the people who installed the ropes, and the people who wove the ropes in the first place. Do you think that gets at the heart of an important difference between these characters?
2: Absolutely. Tracker is, you know, very sensory. And one of the things I did like about him. Um, If you can't smell, feel, touch, taste it, it doesn't necessarily register to him for a very long time. Soglin is always interested in what's the system and what's the power. Because at a very young age, she witnessed the very pinnacle of power and realized that, you know, it ain't all that. <laughs> Even when I was writing um, Black Leopard, I knew this, that she saw literally the strings being pulled. And she's interested in it. There are times when she's literally talking about architecture, literally about how these buildings stand and how they fall. Because, yeah, way more than Tracker, she's interested in the systems that prop up the people that prop up and take down the people that it takes down.
1: I wonder, did you intend for that to be a statement about gender, given that one is female and one is male, or just the character?
2: I I think both. One of the, the overriding themes that Sogolon comes to, you know, Sogolon believes in the first book and is kind of convinced of in the second, is that the matrilineal society was the only one that worked. And that... um the, the way in which power and succession has come to be normalized is actually an aberration, and that we're never meant, at least in Sutherland's worldview, never meant to build societies that way. The running joke in the book about all these things looking phallic, which you know Sutherland notes with disdain and mockery. It's like, what is up with these people? It's like, you know, yeah. seriously, why? <laughs>
1: You wrote in a piece for the New York Times Magazine that when you were 28 years old, you were so convinced that your voice would out you as gay that you stopped speaking to people you didn't know. You write, too, that you hid your true identity in part by joining a fundamentalist church for nine years, Mm -hmm. hoping you'd be quote unquote saved until the act of writing, which I feel perfectly comfortable calling your superpower, rescued you. I'm wondering whether any of those experiences came into play for you as you wrote Sagalan. She's often silent. She's often denied an identity by others, although she's adamant and vocal about having a name. So she has clarity about her own identity. And she's often rescued by her superpower. Do you think your experiences informed hers? And did they do it in a conscious way as you wrote?
2: I think they did. I'm not sure they did it in a conscious way. Most of the women that, in fact, nearly pretty much all the women that I've ever written are trying to escape something. Whether it's Night Woman or the characters in Brief History, they're always trying to escape something or, or and, and be who they always felt they were, despite being constantly told who they are. And I think, yeah, that's something that I definitely identified with. You know, Sogolon goes her own way, and I think that's really, really hard. Jeanette Winterson talks about how when she finally came out to her mother, and mother's like, absolutely not. You were pretty much banished from this house, and Jeanette chooses to leave, and the mother says, why would you want to be happy when you can be normal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's a great um, book,
1: by the way, that memoir. Yeah. And a great title. Yeah,
2: Fantastic title. <laughs> right. um, but that was, the you know, I know I struggled with that. Why, why be happy when you can be just like everybody else? In fact, mm-hmm. maybe that is what being happy is. And realizing that I was wanting desperately to be something that I was physically unable to be, but still striving anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So being sort of thrust into a situation where you have to sort of define yourself and come to a point where the version of yourself that you want to live with is something I do understand. And I do understand what it's like to be um, labeled and to sort of try to define yourself outside of that. So some of that I do do identify with, but I don't think I consciously did it.
0: Yeah. You've thought a lot about the gods of African tradition and researching and writing this trilogy, and you thought a lot about a contemporary God, I assume, as a member of the church where you hope to be, quote unquote, saved. Do you have any views on what these versions of gods or gods say about the respective societies that you were either studying or living within?
2: Yeah. You know, um, the African gods in some ways kind of remind me of the Greek gods. They're not as as petty. (laughs) Mm-hmm. They're not as petty and vindictive and quarrelsome as the Greek gods, and they're certainly not as fatalistic as the Norse gods. But it's interesting how a lot of these societies, gods are creatures that you simply have to put up with. Mm. Worship, yes, because they still have power and they can grant much, but realizing that they're fickle and they're in some ways like children. And um, realizing that gives you a different attitude towards religion and weirdly enough a different attitude to yourself. Because if you're of the belief that, you know, we're on this ship, Poseidon might give us a journey or Poseidon might drown us. <laughs> it really it really depends on the mood. If somebody stepped on his toe that day, yeah. then you're gonna develop a sort of a self-reliance. It's a greater reliance on self, which I think is what happens in a lot of the quote unquote pagan religions. Mm-hmm. I think the Judeo-Christian religions are very different in the sense that um, there's always deference and acknowledgement and an insistence on that. And it's not better or worse. It's simply different. It's a different relationship to deity, I think. And there's something to me that was very organic about the ancient Africans' relationship to, to deities, the ancient Greeks' relation to deities, the ancient Norse or even Celtic relation to deities that, you know, in some ways, made the gods seem like an extreme version of human nature, which is why I think they responded to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that the two books of the trilogy so far have very different narrators and different emphases, so maybe this question doesn't quite work. But I'm wondering, was there anything about writing the second book that made you think, you know what? I've gotten way better at X or y or Z than I was when I wrote the first book. i'm I've really honed that aspect of writing.
2: It's funny. I remember that reminds of a quote that a s Bayat said. she says each each book you write prepares you for the next book. And that turned out to be very true for me in in ways in which I wouldn't have expected. I think with Black Leopard, um, Tracker is in in many ways very much in the present tense, even though it's not written in present tense. Um, Sutherland's story is written literally in present tense, but hers covers more. But Tracker's story is sort of very immediate, and it made me think that Sutherland's story would have a way wider scope. Sutherland would be, this is just part of the story. It's a bigger thing, and this is just one aspect of it. And I knew that in writing a story like Tracker's where there's so much on focus. I knew that with Sogland I'd go the other way where there's an emphasis, you know, on scope.
0: Yeah. Is there ever any part of you that thinks while you're writing, you know, for my next book, I think I might try minimalism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering if that ever crosses your mind. Because yeah,
2: I read so many, you know, so many sort of minimalist writers and I keep going, how do they do it? I'm obsessed. People wouldn't believe this, but I'm obsessed with short novels.
0: Huh. So what's that about, that obsession? Is is it the grass is always greener or something else? I
2: just I just I mean it's how they get to the point in 180 to 200 words. I mean 180, I'm just finished one scene. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know. I I just finished passing and I'm about to finish a cement garden and uh, these fantastic short novels. I'm like, how do you do it?
1: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So inspired by Jeanette Winterson, you've talked about reading as an act of free will that you Mm -hmm. can read for yourself alone with a book that you've hidden away and get liberated by reading without anyone else knowing. I'm also struck by how connected books can make us feel. You've talked about reading Leon Uris, James Clavell, Jackie Collins, and having no sense of highbrow versus Mm Lowbrow. When I had a choice, you said I always chose the bigger book because they took more time. I I hear you saying these things and I think soulmate. Like as a kid, (laughs) I read Leon Uris, I read James Mm -hmm. Cavell, I read Jackie Collins. I'm gonna throw in a little Sydney Sheldon. (laughs) Yeah. And I read, you know, as I know you did, you know, Steinbeck and Austin and Dostoevsky. And I was like, this is all great. Yeah. I remember walking up to my English teacher once and saying, do you know about this Robert Ludlum guy? He is so good. And like mm-hmm. seeing all of the respect drain from my teacher's eyes.
2: I couldn't understand. I mean, I understand now, but I couldn't understand why we couldn't do Shogun in our in lit class. Yes. And
1: Taipan.
2: Literature classes did. It's, it's, um, it made me... When I came across Huckleberry Finn, I was like, oh, my God, we get to do fun books? <laughs> I remember though, when I was doing for was, um, for my A-levels, and I hated some of the books so much that I went to the exams office and said, these can be the only books we're being taught for this exam. So they handed me the syllabus, and I saw Tom Jones. I didn't know what that was, but I knew the singer Tom Jones. <laughs> um. And I got this book and it was so much fun to the point where even though I wasn't taught it in school, I wrote about that in the exam. Mm. Because the danger, I think, sometimes when we teach English literature, literature in general is that we convince students that reading isn't fun. Mm. You know, one of the things, especially if you read those big books, you remember the book where it's kind of hard, but you're getting it. Mm. And you're like, you've never read, gone out this far or read this long, but but you're getting it. And it's exciting because you know it's challenging, but you're digging it. And that's a big moment for a a young reader. And then you go to class and go, let's talk about the theme of displacement in the first 13 pages (laughs) of New Marriage*. And you're like, yes, it's important, but I think we lose something when we forget that, you know, books – you know, books are fun. And and to go back to, you know, Leon Uris and James Clavell and Jackie Collins, a lot of those books I came across simply because they were there
1: mm-hmm.
2: and they're available or I could beg them or borrow them or sometimes borrow without telling the people I was borrowing them. <laughs> I, you know, I've said this before that for me, the only category I needed for a book was that it was next.
1: Right. Right. So... We were beyond excited to learn that you're writing and producing a crime drama called Get Millie Black for HBO.
2: Yeah. Um, so Get Millie Black is kind of a, a sort of a nod to black exploitation. There's a TV show that didn't last long. Um, most Americans never even heard of it called Get Christy Love. and I think it, only, I think it was only one season. I don't know which network it was on. But in Jamaica, we were just transfixed by it. And I've always been inspired by that, and, and Foxy Brown and Shaft and so on. Yet millerbeck is, of course, nothing like that. <laughs> um, my mom will say it's inspired by her because she's a detective. It's not. <laughs> Please stop that, mother. Um, it's an original screen, it's an original screen, the original story about a British Jamaican um, detective who ends up sort of coming back to Jamaica in disgrace because of something that happened in a case in the UK. And she ends up being embroiled in a case that takes her right back to London. She gets drawn into a human trafficking ring, which leads her right back to the country that she was pretty much forced out of. And her her dealing with that, as well as dealing with coming back to a brother who is now a sister.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You've said that it's really hard to write about your mother, that it was easier for you to think about writing about your dad. Mm-hmm. I was kind of hoping that Get Millie Black would be a vehicle for you that would allow, that allowed you to <laughs> write about her, since uh, I think her, her police background is, mm-hmm. is at least a starting point for the story. Do you think you'll ever be able to write about her? Yeah.
2: I mean, I wrote a whole thing about not being able to write about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in that essay. Is you know the curious absence of mothers from family albums mm. because they're the ones usually taking the picture.
0: Yeah,
2: that's how she ends up being absent. She's too busy sending me to school, you know, for me to see her. You know, doing all of that and and working and being a detective on top of that. And my mom was in one of the most volatile parts of Kingston. Um, mm. I remember election night. Yeah, election night. I mean, she was in the middle of a shootout. Oh, my God. Wow. I think this is – so So, me and my mom have an appointment. I'm going back to Jamaica soon, and I tell her I'm coming with tons of this. I'm going to ask you about you, your mother, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, everything. We're going to get it down on tape. She's going to resist doing it all the way, and I'm going to just accidentally tape her.
0: And then then you're going to write a 180-page book about it.
2: <laughs> Either that or I'm mean, going to write a short novel. <laughs> right, right,
1: right. Um, I want to ask about one more thing about your mom, and you may not want to talk about this, but in which case, obviously, just say so. But mm-hmm. um, so you wrote in that New York Times essay a while back that you were very concerned about how your mom would react to your coming out and that you, you know, you had a lot of uncertainty about it. And I'm hopeful from what you're saying now that it's that's been fine but I guess I for readers who read that essay and don't know do you want to talk about how it's gone
2: yeah you know the thing about um you know my mom is my mom is 86 and I think they you know it's they, they process it in a very sort of 86 year old way you know it's like back in the day when people just say your are traveling companion <laughs>
0: yes
2: <laughs> you know um like, you know, so you know, and you're you know, saw that picture with your friend. Mm-hmm. And and I'm like, you know what, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I I you know I have to allow again, you know, my you know, my mom was born in the 1930s. Mm. Even getting to that point is a big leap. I think when you're when you're dealing, I think at some point you have to deal with what you have gained instead of focus of what you haven't. Mm-hmm. And and I think that we, you know, we still have the type of relationship where, you know, we can talk to her about always about her. I don't know if we're going to have very long conversations about my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some things she can make the leap and some things she won't. But, I also, but I'm but i also come to terms with that. I don't think much would have been gained by me simply, you know, showing up in my, in my you know, shocking pink pants and go, I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. Um, I think there's a time for that. And there's certainly family members who I'm totally doing that with.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: But I think I also have to allow for, you know, somebody who was literally born in the first third of the previous century and how far they've come and how far they can go.
1: Eve, remember when we were sitting across the table from each other at City Bakery on 18th Street, and I said, how about we do a podcast together? And you said, sure, without even having ever listened to podcasts. (laughs) Yes. You mean the moment that changed my life forever? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Did you ever dream then that we would get to talk to Marlon James about a book of his that we love, about African mythology, about Claudia Rankin and Jeanette Winterson, about Jackie Collins and James Clavell, about the crime drama that Marlon's writing for HBO, about his mother and more? <laughs>
0: well, I seem to remember that what we said to each other at the time was, We'll just talk about books. And if not a single person ever listens, that'll be fine. So no, I did not ever imagine that that would happen. No. And we have a surprise too. Marlon talked with us about a book he loves and why he loves it. We're going to share his book recommendation along with others from many of our past guests. Everyone from Joanne Beard, Casey Sepp, Catherine Schultz, Tochi Onyabuchi, Nancy Pearl, Tom Lynn, and many more in our 100th episode coming up on April 7th. So get ready to explode your TBR lists.
1: Let me just say that Book Dreams could not possibly be where it is, not even close, if it weren't for listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you
0: can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Marlon at marlonjameswriter.com and on Twitter at Marlon James
1: 5. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Oh, listen to with Julie and